Good evening, and can I wish you a Happy New Year? It's the first time I've had an opportunity to speak to a number of you, and I trust that this will be a happy and a blessed New Year for us all. We're going to be commencing a story, a study, as George has said, on the book of Habakkuk, one of the smaller books in the Bible, one that very rarely is spoken about, but yet is so relevant for what we are facing today. I want to start by just telling you a story. It may not seem relevant to anything I'm going to say at the moment, but as we go through our study this evening, I hope it makes sense. While I was at university, a friend of mine had what we called a yacht. It was a dinghy. It was a very small boat with a sail. And we used to spend some time together on our lake. And we used to sail around that lake in our summer holidays. We used to watch the surface of the lake for the tiniest ripples. Because as we looked at the ripples, we could anticipate the wind. We would see the breeze on the surface of the lake. And that breeze would catch the sail of our ship or our little boat and take us to our destination. We were watching for tiny ripples, but we didn't understand the complexities of what was going around about to create those winds which caused those tiny ripples. We didn't understand what was going on in the atmosphere. We didn't understand about the weather fronts. We didn't understand about how weather in another part of the world would affect the weather in where we were to create that tiny breeze and that tiny ripple. I just want you to log that idea. And just think of those, the fact that something small and insignificant is part of a much, much bigger picture. As George says, we're looking at a study in the book of Habakkuk. And who was Habakkuk? Well, we know very little about him. It's simply his name means to, to embrace. He's mentioned twice in his book, and he has no other mention in the history. And both times that he mentions himself in his book, he refers to himself as a prophet. It is possible that he might have been a priest serving in the temple. And this assumption is based on the final statement, which is recorded in his book. And we'll be looking at that in a couple of weeks' time. But I just want to address a question to you. I want you to use your imagination. Permit me to use mine. I want you to imagine that there's a group of men standing around in a huddle in a discussion. Twelve men, to be precise. And in the middle of those men, there is one man. And his name is Augustine, or St. Augustine, as he is better known. And the 12 men who are gathered around St. Augustine are saying to him, Augustine, why did you call all 12 of us the minor prophets? The minor prophets? You see, their very name, the very title, the minor prophets, seems to imply and to suggest to us that they're of lesser significance. And yet, whenever you look at the Hebrew Bible, those 12 names are compiled into one book, the Book of the Twelve, the Message of the Twelve, and they carry a significant part of the Old Testament prophecy. 
And because sometimes they're referred to as the minor prophets, we frequently treat them as minor. We frequently think that their message is not as applicable to us today. We're going to look at the book of Habakkuk over three weeks. And as we look at it over three weeks, we're going to be looking at it and trying to understand. But before you look at the minor prophets, you need to understand something about them. Very briefly, a very, very brief history. Many people steer clear of the minor prophets because they find them difficult to understand. And one of the reasons they're difficult to understand is because people fail to put them into their historical context. If you look in the Old Testament, there are basically three maps which summarize the Old Testament. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel. Then you've got the United Kingdom of Israel under Saul and David. And then you have got the divided kingdom, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And when you're looking towards uh, understanding the minor prophets, you're looking at that colored screen. I realize that if some of you are looking at this on an iPad or possibly even on a phone, you won't be able to read the detail. But bear with me, because it's just to illustrate. And that is at that colored screen, the screen in which you have the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, that divided kingdom, is the time of these prophets and the minor prophets. And when you come to study them, you need to determine which kingdom they're addressing. Some of them address the kingdom of Israel. Some of them address the kingdom of Judah. Again, this is a little chart, and the chart well, may be hard to read, but it does show you that it also covers three periods in history. These prophets cover what is known as the Assyrian Age, the Babylonian Age, and the Persian Age. You can see that some of them prophesied Israel, some of them prophesied to Judah, and some of them prophesied to foreign nations. For example, Jonah being one that is very well known. And in the middle of the Babylonian age, you have Habakkuk from around about 630 to 605 BC. He is prophesying to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And Habakkuk is preparing them for an invasion the invasion of the Babylonians in 586 BC. That is what he is looking forward to. But the book of Habakkuk is slightly different to all of these others because the book of Habakkuk, rather than being a prophecy as we would understand it, God sending his instructions to people, the book of Habakkuk is a dialogue. And it's a dialogue between God and Habakkuk. And Habakkuk raises some significant questions and receives answers from God in the three chapters of his little book. So why study Habakkuk? I mean, let's face it, you've just said it's one of the smallest books in the Bible. You said that it's very rarely looked at in whenever you're speaking. So why study it? Well, maybe if you look at the titles of some of these books, and I just picked out these at random. Living by Faith in Difficult Times, Three Studies in the Book of Habakkuk, or Warren, Warren Wearsby's book, From Worry to Worship, or Martin Lloyd-Jones's book, From Fear to Faith. In many ways, that is a summary of the message of Habakkuk. Living in difficult times, living in worrying times, living in fearful times, but living by faith in those times and eventually worshipping and praising the God who is in control of world history. 
as somebody says, while Habakkuk begins by wondering or worrying about the world around him and God seeming indifferent, he ends up by worshipping God. What caused this remarkable change? Why did Habakkuk begin with a complaint and end with a song of praise? Why did Habakkuk begin with a complaint and end with a song of praise? And over three weeks, we will endeavour to answer that question. So let's turn to the book. I was reading from the ESV, and we'll look at the first four verses initially. And it says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And in the ESV, I have the subtitle, Habakkuk's Complaint. Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, or why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help? Lord, why will you not listen? Have you ever been in that position? Well, there's a book called The Silence of God. But before we get to that book, let's just talk very briefly about the five things that is happening in Habakkuk's world. He's saying God's law has been neglected. He says violence is on the increase. Theft and plundering are everywhere. Strife and contention arises. And he says there's no evidence of justice. And Habakkuk is referring to the, Ju the tribes of Judah. He's taking us back 2,500 plus years ago. And what he's recording is exactly what we are seeing today in our world. And in what we are experiencing in our world. Strife and contention. No evidence of justice. Theft. Violence. God's law being totally neglected. So God, I'm crying out to you, why will you not listen? I suppose if we were writing that today in the 21st century, we'd add a couple of more boxes to that. No political leadership. No seeming resolution to many of the social problems in our lands. And Lord, what's going to happen about this pandemic? Lord, what about unemployment? What about my future? How long will I cry out to you? And why will you not listen? I mentioned about the silence of God. And sometimes we have a real difficulty understanding why God is silent. The Silence of God is the title of a book. The title of a book by Sir Robert Anderson. And I have it in my bookshelf. It's written in 1898. It's a book I treasure. And the very, very first line of the very first chapter that Sir Robert Anderson writes is this. A silent heaven is the greatest mystery of our existence. 
And sometimes we find such words as those uttered by the old prophet, does God know? And or is there knowledge in the most high? We ask those questions and look for answers. The silence of God. How long do I need to cry out? And then God answers in a very strange way. And we read the verses there, and I'll pick out a couple of phrases in them. He says, and this is God responding to Habakkuk's question. Why are you not listening? He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is a remarkable thing. Now, whenever you look and say, God, you're silent, he's sometimes saying, yes, I am deliberately being silent. In the midst of your crying out in the social issues that you're facing today, in the political problems that you see across the world, in the pandemic that doesn't seem to be resolving itself, certainly in the immediate future, I'm doing a work that you would not believe if told. You know, as parents growing up, we are bringing up our children. Sometimes we don't tell them everything. And we don't tell them everything because we love them. We don't tell them everything because we have care for them. And God, in his mercy sometimes, doesn't tell us everything that is going to happen because he cares for us. You don't say to a three-year-old, you say, don't go out and play in the street or run in the car in front of the cars, but you don't talk about the serious consequences. You just warn them and say, don't do that. God is saying, I'm doing things that you would not believe if told. Is God today telling us things or doing things? in this world in which we live, that we wouldn't believe if told. And he says, look among the nations, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or in your Bible it might say the Babylonians, and they all come for violence. Sorry? You're telling me, God, that you are working among the nations that are things that are happening among the nations and that you are raising up the Chaldeans and that the Babylonians are going to come in, these violent, vicious people. They're going to overthrow the land of Judah and you're going to take them into captivity. And this is part of your plan? He says, yes, I, I'm going to do that. They come for violence. I'm raising the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation and it will march across the breadth of the earth. And so it led to, and it was fulfilled, Babylon in 586 sacked Jerusalem. The people were taken off into captivity for 70 years. And it's before, at the end of that captivity when they come back and, and rebuild the temple. But it was part of God's plan. God was using the nations. God was using those people who were going to destroy Jerusalem. 
for his purpose. And he says, look at the nations and watch. So we lift our eyes. God says, I'm working. You know, remember I said to you about the breeze in the water, about the fact that that little breeze which took our little dinghy across the lake, we had no idea where it was coming from. The various fronts and all the weather issues that were behind creating that little breeze, possibly deep depression somewhere else, even as far as in the Far East that were affecting that weather. I didn't understand it. I couldn't understand it. And sometimes if we look at our world today and we see things happening and changing, we shake our head and says, God, I'm working. I know what I'm doing. And it may be difficult. He says, Habakkuk says, but, but Lord, my Holy One, you're the eternal one. Do you plan to wipe us out? You have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us, but you're pure and cannot stand the, the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Can you be silent while these wicked people swallow up people more righteous than they? Will you, not let, will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed? Surely it's a legitimate question. Why, God, are you allowing this evil people to come in? Why are you allowing this difficult situation to develop? You cannot be using them to wipe out your people. God says, I am. And they will. And so therefore we come to that very fundamental question about do we question God? And so therefore we find ourselves in the situation. I'm sure many of you will recognize this picture from Queen's University. Galileo, the statue of Galileo in the foyer of Queen's University. That man sitting there, the great thinker. But do you know that he faced the Inquisition twice because he dared to, as the church perceived, question God? Are we entitled to question God? Should we question God? Well, if you look in the Bible, you will see time and time again that men do question God. You can go back to the oldest book in the Bible, Job. He questions God. Jeremiah questions God. The psalmist questions God. Why God? Why is this happening? Why are you allowing it to happen? Do you remember whenever Moses in the book of Exodus, at the burning bush, the Lord called him and told him to go back to Egypt? He said, why, God, I can't do this. God said, go back to Egypt. And then we had the discourse with God, and Aaron became Moses' spokesman, and they went back to Egypt. And then Moses stood there in front of Pharaoh, and he said those famous words, let my people go. Pharaoh basically laughed at him and said that because you have actually taken that line I'm going to make it more difficult for your people. I'm going to make their life more strenuous. I'm not going to provide them with the straw that is necessary to make the, break, make the bricks that they were making while you were in, they were in captivity. That straw is no longer available. They had to collect it themselves or else they had to manufacture the bricks without the straw. And they became more and more frustrated and they became more oppressed. And the slave drivers became more and more violent. 
And the people came to Moses, and Moses came to God and said, God, you told me to go and say, let my people go. Why on earth have you created this situation? Why on earth are you allowing this to happen? Why are you allowing your people, your chosen people, to suffer in this way? They're blaming me. But Moses didn't realize that by taking the straw out of the making of the bricks and putting the people of Israel through that difficult period in their history, that they were being bound together as a nation and standing up and ready to move whenever the instruction came to leave. Prior to that, they may not just have been as quick to leave, but because of what had happened, God had prepared them as a nation to move them out into the wilderness. So yes, we do, and we can question God reverently. It is appropriate to sometimes question God. Then in chapter two, Habakkuk responds, okay, why is all of this happening? Why are you allowing what is happening and being silent? Why are you going to use affliction in the Babylonians to bring about your purpose? Why are you going to carry your people into captivity? I don't understand at all. But I'll go up onto the watch post and I'll station myself in the tower. And I'll look out to see what will he say to me. And what will I answer concerning my complaint? My complaint to God. I will stand at the watchtower and watch. He wasn't the only person. Jeremiah did something similar. But when I read this, my mind goes to another story in the New Testament, the story of Simeon. That man who was standing in the temple awaiting the child. The phraseology and the language that Simeon uses is the language of a man who is completing his period of guard duty at the watch post. It's a picture of a man saying, okay, I finished my duty. Now I can depart in peace. Looking out for the Messiah, looking for the child. 400 years of silence. 400 years where God had not intervened in the history of a nation. 400 years where people became more and more and more and further and further and further away from God. And there was one man, Simeon, standing at the watch post, waiting for the child. Do you know something? We can stand at the watch post. Because as we look around about us and we say, God, what is happening? Why are you silent? We see political chaos in America. We see it here in the UK. We see a pandemic we're sweeping across the nation. We see social inequality. We have fears and depression. But God, we recognize that you're moving. You're taking the nations. You're putting them in place. And we stand at the watch post and we look out for the coming of the king. 
I may have told you before, but I went with my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law to a cathedral in England. And when I went into that cathedral, it was a beautiful building, but there was a scene that will live with me and resonate with me for the rest of my days. I sat down in a chair quietly on my own as I looked right up into the very rafters, up into the roof. There was an image, a golden image, of the returning Christ. And I sat there and stared at it and thought, we need to stand at our watch post and look out because God is moving the nations. God is moving the people and in his mercy, he is not telling us what he is doing because we probably couldn't cope with it. But he says, like Habakkuk, look up because my hope is coming. And chapter 2 deals with that. And we'll look at it next week. So, the breeze in the water. I didn't know where it came from. I didn't understand what was behind it. But I did know that it would take me home. And I look out. And I realize a world in chaos. And I see things falling apart. But I do know that as I stand at my watch post and look up, that he will come again. Thank you. Let's close in prayer, and then I'll hand over to George again. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement from this prophet from two and a half thousand years ago. And yet, our Father, what he has to say and what he says into our lives is so relevant for us today. Our Father, as we struggle, and as we face difficulties, and as we try to understand and comprehend the silence of God, we realize that sometimes your silence is because of your love and because of your mercy. But our Father, we do watch as the pawns and the board are being moved by the hand of mighty God, as we are preparing for the coming of the King. Help us, our Father, to live in the light of his return. We thank you, our Father. We pray for those who are taking us through this pandemic, those in particular in the health service, those essential workers in education and in the supply industries. Father, we pray that your hand might be upon the government and our leaders. Lead and guide them in these difficult days, we will pray. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.